0: This podcast is supported by VPLU, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Hey, Pete.
1: Hi, Jess. Looking forward to this very much.
0: Me too. Today, we're speaking with Adam Cohen from the University of California in Berkeley. Adam Cohen is a transportation thought leader, consultant, and shared mobility researcher at the Transportation Sustainability Research Centre at Berkeley. Since joining the group in 2004, his research has focused on innovative urban mobility solutions, including shared mobility, smart cities technology, smartphone apps, urban air mobility, and other emerging technologies. Adam also served three combat tours in support of Operation Enduring Freedom as a rated aviator for the combined joint special operations air component. Welcome to the show, Adam.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Adam, can you give us just a brief biography beyond what Jess has uh, outlined?
2: Sure. So um, I am a transportation planner and researcher. Um, I've been working at the University of California, Berkeley since uh, 2004, studying uh, innovative and emerging transportation technologies, uh, such as uh, you know, shared mobility, automated vehicles, and other innovations. And um, I know that one of the things we're gonna talk about today is micromobility, and it's a topic that I am uh, very passionate about.
0: And what exactly does micromobility mean, just for our listeners?
2: Yeah, so micromobility is really kind of the use of a bike, scooter, or other low-speed mode um, for urban transportation. Um, and in the context, of, I think, of how we're going to be talking about it, uh, you know, shared micromobility when you kind of check a, a device out from kind of a, a fleet of devices that an operator makes available.
1: Uh, Adam, I had my first experience of um, electric scooters in Canberra, which is our capital city, about three weeks ago, and uh, quite incredible technology, the geo-fencing on them, which we'll come to, and just the ease of getting around. But... Why should city planners and transport engineers and also city managers take an interest in this subject?
2: Well, that's a great question. You know, micromobility has the potential um, to offer innovative mobility strategies um, and to, to allow people to get out of a private vehicle for those shorter trips that they might have been driving before. Um, so it represents a really great opportunity to reduce vehicle kilometers traveled and hopefully have a better impact on the environment.
0: I know in Melbourne, um, where we're predominantly based, Adam, um, we've had quite uh, unusual sort of success, I guess you'd you'd say. Oh, I'd say mixed mixed success. (laughs) Definitely mixed success with um, using micromobility means, so um, the shared scooters and shared bikes and things like that, um, where a lot of them um, have ended up in our rivers and have ended up sort of, you know, essentially polluting our cities. So I'm not sure if that's a um, uh, you know that's a unique situation to Melbourne. I'm sure it's not. But have you have you had similar experiences um, in the cities that you've looked at?
2: Well, there's definitely some potential challenges. Um, everything from vandalism to durability of devices to battery recycling. Um, we're seeing the operators really kind of working hard to improve. Uh, the durability and the sustainability of the devices. So innovations such as swappable batteries that help um, reduce uh, vehicle kilometers travel because instead of having to pick up devices to charge them, they can bring um, pre-charged swappable batteries, um, which helps kind of reduce um, the size of the vehicles um, and the amount of trips they need to do for servicing. But I think it's important as we start kind of talking about the context of micromobility to remember that there's, you know three different kind of service models that are out there. Um, there is kind of a station-based systems, you know, where you pick up a bike or a scooter from a, a, a dock. There are dockless systems where you can pick up or drop them off anywhere. And then there's kind of this this what's known as a hybrid system, kind of in between, where it kind of blends aspects of both a docked and a dockless system. You might be able to pick up a device at a dock and drop it off anywhere or the other way around.
1: Adam, what drew you to researching micromobility?
2: mobility? Well, I think micromobility um, really allows people access to bikes and scooters in a new way and to a, a greater variety of devices. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different potential obstacles that people might have to n- using kind of a traditional bike that you might own. Um, You know, bikes can be expensive. And so some people, they might be avid cyclists, but they might not want to park their bicycle somewhere out of fear of vandalism or theft. Um, And so, you know, micromobility, you know, in a shared context can kind of help fill those gaps, but it can also be a gateway for people that might not have used those services otherwise. You know, in bike sharing, the bikes tend to be a little bit heavier um, and, and a little bit more substantial, for uh, riders that are less experienced. And the scooters, some people find them fun. Um, We hear a lot from from women who like scooters because um, they're more comfortable standing up on the device versus sitting on a bicycle. Um, And now we're seeing the development of so many new electrified devices out there. Three-wheel scooters that don't tip over, um, e-bikes, bikes that are a little bit more accessible for older adults and people with disabilities. So there's a lot of innovations going on out there with, and it's just expanding access for more people.
0: I feel like the innovation in this space has, um, has happened very, very quickly. I think, I mean, even within um, our local context within Melbourne, I think, you know, we only, we only received the, the physical bikes or the bike sharing model, you know, maybe five, six years ago. And all of a sudden, we're moving into e-scooters and things like that, which is, I think, just quite an unbelievable um, evolution of events, really. But I'm, um, I'm interested to hear from you, Adam, around what the what the future might hold. I guess in terms of that evolution, like, when are we going to start seeing things like, um, you know, drone sharing or um, air travel sort of sharing models? Well,
2: um, they already exist. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of innovations um, in advanced air mobility. It's another topic that I I researched. Um, Everything from package delivery to emergency response to even um, air taxi service using both electric helicopters and novel aircraft designs. So all of these innovations and many others are on the horizon and they're, they're quite interesting um, and there will be some challenges, but also they're somewhat exciting as well.
1: Adam, we would be, we'd love to come back to you for another interview. I'm particularly interested in, like, zo- uh, drone corridors, mm-hmm. air corridors for transport. But just sticking with this one, you, along with Susan Shaheen, you know, have written this shared micro mobility policy toolkit. What was the purpose of the task, and what was your target audience with the with toolkit?
2: Yeah, so the toolkit was something that Susan and I developed because we felt that um, local, regional, state, and provincial governments really needed a resource to help them understand these innovations, how to plan them, how to implement them, and the types of policies that could be implemented to better uh, manage some of the adverse impacts and hopefully mitigate those.
1: And in terms of uh, background research. How did you approach it? And did you have city partners? I mean, we're very interested on in how you put put the work into the toolkit to get it all started. And it's such a massive topic over such a big geographical area. How did you pull it all together?
2: Well, you know, my colleague Susan and I, we are constantly working with um, local, regional and state uh, governments, as well as international partners. And, you know, we started the research through, you know, a lit review, uh, literature reviews looking at, um, you know, model policies, looking at issues on the ground, you know, photographs, things on social media, the media that we were hearing, both of opportunities and challenges. And from that, we kind of collected all of that information, systematically organized it, categorized it, and then tried to pull out some of the best practices and lessons learned.
0: And Adam, um, probably an issue, well, particularly moving forward as we start to move into um, the, the airspace kind of um, area that we are talking about before, but um, how have you found, I guess, the different um, spatial and legal issues across different um, parts of America and, and how, how is that playing out, I guess, across the world? Is that going to be a huge barrier moving forward?
2: Well, in the context of micromobility, I think it's a little bit simpler than other contexts. So, um, you know, micromobility, I think. I think the challenge is that there's a lot of different devices out there, and there's a lot of efforts to try to categorize them and to understand where best to operate them. You know, does it does it get operated on a curb? Does it get operated in a bike lane? Does it get operated on a street with vehicle traffic? Uh, but But a lot of these services are started to to come to the realization that they are either a bike or a scooter or an e-bike that should be operated within a bike lane. Um, The one exception will be mopeds, uh, which are generally classified in a different vehicle class and then would operate um, with actual motor vehicles. But I think what we need to do, we need to look at is more more education outreach to the public, to tell, to tell people like, this is how you should use the devices and this is where, um, where they should be uh, parked as well. We're seeing the operators, especially in the US, take a lead at using technology and enforcement to help um, educate riders and to promote the right behaviors. Um, over the past 12 months uh, during the pandemic, there's been a lot of changes in the devices and they've gotten much more advanced. Um, there are operators now that have um, sensors and they use artificial intelligence and they can dis- they can tell whether somebody is riding a device on the curb versus um, in a bike lane based on the vibrations that the device picks up and from that they can actually issue warnings Uh, videos that require a user to to take a class on where they should ride or park, or issue a fine or even ban somebody from using the system. We're also seeing efforts at putting cameras on devices that will allow the devices, if they're parked improperly, to be repositioned or to dispatch somebody to move the device to a more appropriate location. So the devices are getting really, really high-tech very quickly
1: that's interesting so so the the tech in tech load uh, and i'm just going back just to get to the start of all this evolution what were the trigger factors that unleashed this very disruptive and i'd say it's a positive disruption uh into mic into micro mobility what what were the trigger factors about a decade or so ago that allowed this revolution to start
2: Well, you know, it really started with this idea of shared mobility, and and that really started with car sharing, Um, and it quickly expanded into bike sharing, Um, and then all of a sudden, technology began to improve that enabled, you know, free-floating systems. Uh, It enabled people to access these services on their smartphone, Um, and so all of these factors Really began converging together to create a model that was um, exciting for users from a technological perspective. Um, you know, more accessible to be able to try different kinds of device types, and um, really kind of I think opened people's eyes to um, you know modes that they may not have considered previously. Uh, and what's exciting about the electrification of these, whether it be a scooter or an e-bike, is that that's extending. The catchment area that these devices might actually serve. So, you know, before, you know, if you had to actually use a pedal bike, you might have been limited by, you know, health um, limitations, but with with the E-Assist now, you can go further with these devices than you would have been previously.
0: And Adam, the the toolkit that you've prepared um, refers to the network effect. Can you explain um, why that is important in this context?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, our research tends to show that on average, the more operators are out there, the more devices, even the more shared services such as, you know, car sharing, bike sharing, scooter sharing, when you have all these services around, it creates a network effect of on-demand mobility that basically multiplies the effectiveness of all those modes so that the sum is greater than their parts. What that means is that if there's a lot of services that are available, people are more likely to use these services to trip chain using multiple multimodal services and hopefully not drive um, a private vehicle.
1: Adam, in in an extract from the toolkit um, mentions with careful planning and public policy, it also has the potential to enhance accessibility and quality of life in cities. Now uh, we're aware that there's been some pushback in some cities uh, and it seems that the operators are acting to regulate it within themselves is there more confidence now than there were say in the cowboy days? And maybe I'm wrong to use that cowboy term.
2: I definitely think there is more confidence because I think over the past couple of years, both cities, as well as the service providers have learned how to better manage or regulate the adverse impacts. Those are things like people riding on a curb or, um, illegally parking a device, those types of things. Those were the things that we've had in the early days. But now what we're seeing is very concerted effort um, to address these issues. Um, So some cities have what's known as corrals, which are like typically a painted box, but it could also be a digital geofence box that basically says, this is where you should park your device. Um, That is one strategy. Um, there are cities that are banning uh, the, the riding on a curb, and you can you know, ticket either an operator or a rider. Um, so all of these things are part of the mix of managing, and I think it's also about education and outreach to users. And I think users have gotten more familiar and comfortable with where they're supposed to operate and park these devices
1: we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at ww.1milegrid.com.au. Some of the findings, again, going back to that work um, we were talking about earlier, Adam, um, suggest, I guess, that the larger metropolitan regions with higher densities and the more robust public transport networks are more successful in this space than perhaps the smaller cities that don't have those aspects to them. Um, Can you just talk a little bit, I guess, about the impacts on the transportation usage and how they do vary depending on the metro areas?
2: Yeah, so that's a difficult one because, you know, our research has found pretty consistently that uh, while there are some similarities across cities, um, the impacts of shared mobility and in particular, uh, micromobility tend to vary based on a lot of unique local circumstances. Everything from local weather or climate to um, density to whether or not it's a grid layout of a street, whether or not the infrastructure is is good, such as bike lanes or even better protected bike lanes. You know, so all of those things feed into the mix of how these devices are used um, and to to how frequently and for what use cases. What I will say though, is our early research on micromobility compared, um, you know, the twin cities. uh, So Minneapolis and St. Paul, Um, in uh, Minnesota and Washington, D.C., and what that early research found was that cities that had um, fewer rail lines that had really kind of limited rail coverage, people were really using micromobility as a first and last mile connection to get to public transit, and in Washington, D.C., which has a very robust transit network, uh, particularly with a a robust rail network, uh, but it's It tends to be overcrowded during the peak periods, particularly before COVID, and so people were maybe using micromobility as a substitute, saying, "You know what? It's more comfortable for me to take a device and quicker sometimes uh, versus changing trains on on a a complex rail network." And so these are some of the dynamics, kind of anecdotally, that we've been able to observe through our research.
1: And I expect um, Adam with the with the upgrades in. The capabilities the abilities of these machines, with the technology, that's going to require further assessment of the link with public transport usage and and these devices.
2: Absolutely, there's a lot of efforts to um, integrate fair payment and to do um, you know comprehensive trip planning and booking between public transit and micromobility. So there's a major initiative underway in Chicago that has been funded by the Federal Transit Administration in the US. And what that initiative is doing is it allows users to um, book and pay for a complete trip that includes both a bike or a scooter and public transit.
1: And uh, one of the issues with the with the mobility machines is the riding on footpaths to the de- detriment of pedestrians. How is, that, how is that best resolved, do you think, or what are cities doing to resolve that issue?
2: Well, there's a number of things that, that can be done. Um, one of them I mentioned before, which is, um, you know, from a regulatory perspective of banning it. Um, education outreach is another important one. Um, You know, some of the operators are implementing um, technologies to detect um, footpath riding, and some of the things that they are doing um, to detect that riding is they are either automatically slowing the device down Um, making a certain noise or or an auditory reminder to tell people that that's not an appropriate place to ride or in some cases the device will come to a stop. And so all of this is enabled through GPS technology or or similar uh, mapping technologies and it allows um, the operators to really enforce um, some of these policies.
0: I think um, just sort of following on from that question, um, the product essentially, and look again, this is probably different in every city, but it feels like it bursts onto the scene quite quickly. And um, city officials were generally far more reactive than they were proactive at the start. Do you think that's starting to change that attitude?
2: A little bit. Um, I think I think there's been cities with a variety of approaches towards micro mobility. There are some that have had a very kind of laissez-faire approach initially. You know, just let operators come in and and kind of learn. There's other ones that have had very definitive uh, demonstration or pilot programs to test out services and to kind of develop policies. Um, others have contracting mechanisms where they will issue in, in the U.S. what we call a request for proposal um, and basically allows companies to be pre-approved to participate or, or to request operating permits from the government, similar to like a taxicab. Um, so these are all different kind of regulatory approaches, and we've seen a bunch of them, uh, you know, consistently being used, depending on what is most suitable for the particular city.
1: Your toolkit, Adam, refers to the experience of Dallas, can you, which is that, uh, which encapsulates what you just said. Can you just tease that experience out uh, for our listeners' benefit?
2: Yeah, well, in the very early days of kind of free-floating bike sharing, um, where you could pick up a bike and drop it off at another location, um, independent of a station, so so the dockless model. Um, you know, what What Dallas encountered was that a lot of these companies were bringing in lots of icicles, dropping them on the street, and they were creating potentially disruptions at the curb, and some of them were ending up in bicycle piles, um, and things like that.
1: And and they, so they've now regulated it, and they've got fewer um, service providers, but much better services, is that about right?
2: Uh, a lot of the cities have, have instituted regulations since those early uh, year or years of deployment. Um, what's also kind of interesting, though, is that there was kind of a pullback in the bike sharing model as well. So there was a, a real push, um, predominantly from a lot of Chinese um, operators, but not all of them, um, that brought over a lot of bicycles and, and deployment them. And for whatever reason, um, a lot of those operators either closed or removed their fleet. So if you actually look um, at some of the numbers in North America, you'll see that there was this real spike, um, you know, right around probably 2017 or 2018 in dockless bike sharing. And then it drops off and the operators started kind of coming back with scooters. Um, to kind of fill to kind of fill that gap, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think scooters are perceived to be a little bit more fun, possibly, um, you know, because you know they go a little bit faster. Um, you know, they, they don't require pedaling. Um, some people find them more accessible due to standing up. Um, I personally am an avid cyclist, um, but I, I do see value in a variety of different device types.
1: When I was in Canberra recently, Adam, I saw the most elegantly dressed woman in high heels to my surprise, jump on a scooter and, and tear off uh, on it. So I suppose
2: it's that um, broadening appeal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what we have at least seen like anecdotally from, from observations and from focus groups of, of folks that we've talked to.
0: And Adam, here in Melbourne, we've got a lot of planning policy that promotes um, this idea of a twenty-minute city, so where residents are able to access most of their services within within a twenty-minute walk. Um, however, I guess many people can't actually walk or carry items very far. Do you think micro mobility or variants of that could be in the mix to help promote this outcome?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, micro mobility is perfectly suited for a twenty-minute city because um, it it makes that 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 spatial distance smaller. I mean, you can, you can cover that so much more space in, in 20 minutes on, on a bike or a scooter um, or another, you know, micromobility device. What I think is also kind of fascinating as well is that there's a, a number of other kind of micromobility devices that kind of fit in that category in terms of size and speed um, that also provide interesting use cases. Um, delivery robots, um, are kind of another form of micromobility devices. Um, you know, there's also pedicabs, um, some of the for hire services. Um, those also um, you know, provide either um, rides on a bicycle um, or even delivery services. So there's a variety of form factors, even within the micromobility segment, that can serve a variety of both uh, mobility but also delivery use cases.
1: Yeah. Adam in, in when I've been to Europe I've always uh, staggered by the number of mopeds that younger people in particular ride and it, it, they're not a motorbike so they're under you know they their engine sizes under a certain that legal limit to get licensed but it provides lots of possible mobility and could f- could free up transport options do you think do you see mopeds also in that category?
2: I think it really depends on either um, the, the local, state, provincial, or federal regulation of where they're deployed. Generally speaking, in the US, most devices that are classified as mopeds are actually motor vehicles. Um, you know, so they require a driver's license and they should be driven uh, with vehicle traffic. But there are variations based on you know local law. Uh, but I will say kind of broadly speaking is that um, you know, these smaller form factors of devices, whether it be mopeds, um, scooters, or bicycles, you know, they're expanding options. Um, you know, they, they don't require a lot of parking, um, like, like private vehicles. They don't require a lot of space um, to operate similar to, to highways. And so for all of these reasons, um, you know, they can, they can help enhance Uh, the quality of life by basically reducing the number of private vehicles um, that that are in an urban area.
0: And Adam, what about the idea of data sharing and data collection through um, all these different methods of transport? How is that going to change the way in which we um, build and plan our cities?
2: Well, data collection and sharing is really important. Um, And there's been a lot of efforts in uh, the US in particular to try to get uh, mobility service providers, including micromobility, uh, to share data. Um, part of it is about an enforcement and management perspective, um, making sure that the operators are complying with what they say they're gonna do or, or with what, what they've been regulated to do. But part of it is also about better planning. If we know more about where users um, are going, Um, between origin and destinations, if we know when they're going, all of a sudden we can provide better mobility services to those users, whether it be bike lanes or maybe it's missing a transit line. Maybe there needs to be a new new bus or rail line between those locations. So um, this data can be really powerful from a planning perspective.
1: I suppose there's some companies want to hoard that data Uh, To themselves, to not let their rivals know. Adam, so, but I can understand why a local authority would want that, and also local authorities can tax the product. Can you? Your toolkit talks about Portland and other places, and some of those funds they receive going back to um, for council costs. Any Mm -hmm. thoughts on the idea of taxing the product?
2: Well, my personal opinion is is that. Um, you know, jurisdictions should, uh, be cautious about taxing, um, a service that provides a social good. And so if you believe that micromobility is, uh, reduces vehicle kilometers traveled, if you believe that it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, um, you know, then a city probably would not want to tax those services. However, um... There are some that do um, have sales tax, you know, or similar to kind of like value-added tax (VAT), um, and you know there there is that potential um, to raise revenue for communities. Um, I've also seen some that will add um, accessibility taxes, meaning you know the device may not serve people with all abilities, and so they provide a tax that's used to fund other mobility services for like people in a wheelchair or that have other disabilities that can't use the service.
0: And can you talk to the importance of sorry, the physical importance, I should say, of corralling the equipment in the public realm? So this might be by um, using existing curbside parking spaces rather than the footpath, because I guess in a lot of cities, um, footpaths are already quite congested.
2: Yeah. So. Um, Device management and curb space management is really uh, important to help um, both not only protect pedestrians, but also protect people with disabilities uh, and making sure that they aren't having obstacles in their uh, right of way. Um, There's a number of different strategies to to doing that. So one of them, you know, we talked about is kind of these these corrals, um, whether they're digital boxes or, or painted boxes, but kind of cues that kind of tell people where an acceptable place is to park. Um, other um, options could include requiring devices be locked to either a bike rack or some sort of street furniture. Um, another um, strategy that's been deployed in some cities is to have direct users to park it in particular curb zones. And so within the curb, there's a footpath, but then there's usually another part of the curb that has an area for, you know, newspaper stands, trash cans, landscaping, all of that. So some cities will say, you know what, operators and users can park devices on the curb, but not in the walking path. And so there's a lot of different approaches to how to handle that. And uh,
1: at the end of the toolkit, you, that you have seven key areas for public officials to consider. And uh, I won't mention all those, we've covered some of those things. But since you um, released the toolkit in 2019, what feedback have you
2: had? Well, we had really positive feedback that it's a really great resource um, for communities. And so we've, we've been really excited about the feedback, but you know, the industry is just changing so incredibly fast. I mean, I, I recently saw a new device that is being rolled out uh, by a service provider. That um, it's a scooter with three wheels, and what the three wheels allows it to do is not to be tipped over um, or blown over, and it allows the operator to use its cameras to be able to park the device differently if it's been misparked. Um, but it, it can rebalance. Um, the devices without having to go out there and physically move the scooter. And um, it can be um, e hailed meaning the device doesn't even need to be parked on the street or in a corral because it could be dispatched to somebody from an off-street location. And so um, all of those innovations, I think, are really interesting and exciting, and I think we're going to see more over the next coming years.
0: And has the feedback that you've received um, been mostly positive?
2: Um, on the toolkit? Um,
0: yeah, on the toolkit, sorry.
2: Yeah, um, the, the feedback has been very positive. Um, you know, we've heard that there's been very much a, a resource that was needed and that this helps kind of fill that gap. And, you know, there's a lot of other um, emerging resources um, all the time that are, that are just kind of making this uh, a more knowledgeable space for cities that don't have experience in this realm. I,
1: I think the toolkit's a tremendous resource. Adam uh, in terms of you, it sets out the history uh, the issues that have emerged and what uh, impacts it has on city spaces and it also has that te- technological aspect of of the data collection the geofencing the speed restrictions mm-hmm. and then it sets out the principles so um, for a city authority it's an off-the-shelf really good guide to managing this this new new form of transportation, where can our
2: listeners get it access the, uh, the toolkit? So we have a website for our center. It's InnovativeMobility.org. And if you go onto our website, there's a drop down for shared mobility resources. And the, um, the micromobility toolkit as well as our other resources will be available on that on that resource page.
0: And Adam, the toolkit concludes, and I'll just read this out, the growing number of electric and electric assist low speed modes will continue to transform how people travel, how goods are delivered, how streets are designed, and how cities evolve. What is clear is that these innovative technologies will likely have a disruptive impact on the traditional notions of curb space planning and design. Thoughtful planning, continued research, and an understanding of micromobility's impacts will be important to balance public goals with commercial interests and to harness and maximize the social and environmental benefits of these innovative transport transportation modes. Are you optimistic about the future? I am
2: optimistic, um, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I'm optimistic about the future. Um, I think the trend is going to be more more um, durable devices, more affordable devices and devices with a better electric range. And so that means that the devices can get a little bit larger. We might see devices that can uh, carry more than one person and um, devices that can serve greater ranges, uh, both both spatial ranges, but also use cases. And so all of this, I think, is really exciting. Um, With the additional technology that, that can be put into these devices, Um, we are um, quickly coming upon a future where uh, devices might be able to be brought to you. So a lot of these challenges of like, you know, where they park may not be an issue in the future because if all of a sudden the devices are in a storefront and they're automated, it could be dropped off and kind of valeted to you autonomously. And so all of these present, I think, some really exciting um, opportunities in the future.
1: I'm thinking, Adam, possibly if more and more people use micromobility, we might have uh, less uh, road space devoted to cars and more space devoted to these sort of hybrid transport uh, devices and also the delivery devices that you sort of referenced. Do you see there's the sort of less car space on the roads?
2: To some extent, yes. I mean, you know, if we can shift people out of private vehicles into other modes, then we have the potential to reduce parking. Um, But that means that we might have new needs um, that we need to address. And so um, that could include, you know, getting rid of on-street parking and replacing it with a protected bike lane. It might be widening a curb. It might be adding parklets or outdoor dining for restaurants. All of these things can be possible if we reduce the large space that's taken up from a vehicle, which is typically parked 95% of the day.
0: And Adam, what is your latest research project? So what are you what are you currently working on?
2: So we are currently working on a project um, for uh, micromobility and curb space management. Um, we are also um, have some exciting research coming out on advanced air mobility as well. So the, the air taxis um, and delivery drones.
1: Well, and, and just uh, on that uh, e-moped companies, uh, I read that they are now turning to e-bike leasing. That, that's a presumably an offshoot of micro-mobility where people can rent these devices and the company services them. And if there's something wrong with them, they replace them. Do you think this is an offshoot of micromobility mobility moving into the, from say the, the public domain into the pri- more private use?
2: You know, there's a variety of different business models out there um, and, and they each have their own offering. So, you know, some of them include charging, some of them include insurance and maintenance. Um, you know, some of them have longer term, you know, pricing or subscriptions Uh, So there's a lot of different kind of niches in the market for a variety of different user types and lifestyles. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details.
0: And looking forward into the future, Adam, 50 years time, where do you think we'll be? And what do you think we'll um, think about um, on reflection, I guess, on these early days of this disruptive technology? Well, you know,
2: that's a really tough thing because uh, 50 years out is, is a really long time given all the disruption we've seen over the past 10 years. Um, I am I'm confident in saying, you know, 50 years out that, you know, our transportation system, will or should be zero carbon. Um, if not, we're gonna be in a lot of trouble um, as, as, a, as a global society. Um, I think we will be more sustainable, more multimodal, and I think we'll be kind of more, more apt to be less reliant on a private vehicle. In fact, you know, private vehicle ownership may no longer be in vogue 50 years from now. You know, I, I really think the future is about a variety of shared services, including micro-mobility, you know, automated taxis, um, and other innovative services, some which are on the horizon, like these air taxis, others which um, may not have been invented yet. Adam,
1: mm. and, and just uh, de- 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 departing from the micro-mobility, you talked about the the, the aerial space and how that's gonna be used. Can you see a time when, that aerial space above cities will be zoned, if you like, between different uses or different functions?
2: It is entirely possible. Um, You know, know, airspace currently has different classifications that allow different uses, but as more people want to use that airspace, um, a more formalized, um, quote, zoning process, um, or kind of defining different use cases Absolutely. And there's already some early work underway that's being done by NASA and the US Federal Aviation Administration.
0: Now, we're just coming to the end of the podcast now, Adam. So we also wanted to ask you and we ask all of our, um, all of our guests this same question. What words do you live by? Do you have a phrase or, or a favorite saying?
2: You know, I live by the golden rule you know, I think, I think we should treat others how, you know, you want to be treated. Um, And I also think um, that same kind of goes through with kind of the environment, you know, we should be, you know, taking care of the environment around us just as we would want the environment to take care of us.
1: Wow. Okay. Um, And how do you refresh and relax? I'm assuming there's going to be some outdoor sort of activities in all that Adam.
2: Well, I am an avid cyclist, um, and, uh, you know, I used to do a combination of indoor and outdoor cycling, uh, but, you know, given the pandemic and kind of given that we're all outdoors, um, I've been really kind of doing a lot more cycling outside.
0: And I assume you're not talking about an e-bike, you're talking about a traditional
2: bike. <laughs> I, I do use a, a traditional bike. I've got no issue with e-bikes. I'm, sh- I'm sure they're wonderful. Um, but I, I, you know, cycle for the health benefits. And so my feeling is if I'm going to be on a bike, I might as well be getting some, some physical activity from it.
0: Do you get annoyed when you get overtaken by an e-bike?
2: You know, I, where I live, there are not a lot of e-bikes, um, on the road, um, nor are there a lot of scooters. I, you know, and, and, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, I have, I have bicycle cyclists that pass me as well sometimes, um, I have seen though some interesting devices though that I have not seen before. Um, I saw, you know, like the ellipticals that you would see at like like a fitness center. Um, I saw a, a, a an elliptical bike that somebody was on standing up just as they were, but it would move, um, so it was not fixed. And I thought that was really interesting. And I will tell you, they were going really, really fast.
0: <laughs> That'd be very funny to say. <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, now we, we come to a, uh, out of what we call culture quarter or podcast extra. And that's something you've read, seen, watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners.
2: Yeah, so um, I actually am a real fan of history and I, I like reading about history. And so one of the things I just actually finished reading, um, was uh, the autobiography from uh, Margaret Thatcher. And so um, part, of the, the, part of what I found really fascinating about it was about the Falkland War, uh, because I had been to uh, Port Stanley uh, before the pandemic. And so reading about kind of the history of it was really interesting.
1: I mean, that was a very analog war. Um, I mean, they had to, they, they, the Brits had a real challenge there, didn't they, having to transport all their equipment all that, all that way? Absolutely.
2: Um, and and now I, you know since then I've been kind of you know watching different kind of kind of videos on the Falkland War. It's just it's just fascinating. I guess I guess the Queen um, let them use uh, her boat to transport troops and everything. It was really fascinating to watch just how long it took to mobilize everybody to, to get to the Falklands.
1: And, and Jess, your podcast extra.
0: Um, another book for me this week, Pete. So I've just started reading another one called The Champagne Wars by um Fiona McIntosh. So this is one that's again probably been doing the rounds on a lot of um book club sites. But it's a beautiful um love story set in World War One um by a champagne maker in in France. So she sets up a um a hospital for the injured soldiers in her champagne cellars underground. And yeah, it's a really lovely read. How about you, Pete?
1: Uh, Jess, I'm doing uh, photo albums. Uh, Adam, I'm always worried about how, you know, we live in this digital age and we take a million photos, but we don't keep any. And I I treasure the photo albums of my family. So I've started a little project to start putting photos in photo albums from various holidays and things. Do, do Do you do anything like that, Adam?
2: You know, I, I, it's funny you say that because I was thinking recently that, you know, ever since we've gone digital, um, people don't really, you know, keep photos typically and you don't see picture frames or things like that. And it's something um, that I haven't done yet, but it's something I am certainly thinking about.
0: I think part of the problem is, Pete, I mentioned this to you earlier, is that we, we have access to so, many, um, to, to so many photos, I guess, now, whereas back in the day when you did just have a camera, you would only potentially only have 30 um, photos that you could take on a roll of film. So your photos were a bit more precious then because you were really thinking about how you wanted to spend those 30 photos. Whereas now you can just snap and click at 100,000 different things. And it's really hard, I think, to then uh, boil that down to which photos you actually want to print
1: and on the flip side um adam and jess we carry around a little handheld computer with amazing photographic abilities so we can take photos all the time so i, I agree with you jess we, we we're sport, but i think the value of um, that physical presence of memories is something that we should hold on to and i'm conscious Jess of what happened in Blade Runner the new movie where there was a digital storm, electrical storm and everything was lost Adam I don't know whether you saw uh, Blade Runner the second version
2: I have not seen it yet but it's definitely on my list I, I, I have seen the original <laughs> okay.
0: it, it always amuses me how often Blade Runner comes up in our podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> well uh, in terms of uh, future transportation Adam, I think you should definitely have a look at the spinners in Blade Runner. So thank you, uh, Adam. You've been a tremendous guest. Um, Thank you for giving us your time. And listeners, the Micro Mobility Toolkit that Adam's co-authored is a brilliant resource, uh, a a wonderful help. So I would urge you to have a look at that. Adam, thank you so much for uh, being on our show. And thank you again, Jess. Thanks,
0: Adam. Thanks, Pete.